Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by fly fishing show elder statesman Chuck Faremsky. Chuck shares his fly fishing journey, we discuss his 30 plus year career as a show promoter, and we update you on what to expect at this year's fly fishing shows. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcast of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster. And they produce the only vice that truly spins. In early 2023, the Norvice team will be on the road demonstrating the Norvice at fly fishing shows across the country. To check out all of Norvice's great products and to see if they'll be coming to a town near you, head over to www.nor-vice.com today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Chuck, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. You mean I have to think back almost 80 years? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> it's, it seems like it. Well, I, you don't know where I grew up, uh, but it was a small town outside of Pittsburgh uh, called McKeesport. It was a fabulous town. It's not so great anymore because when the mills closed, everything changed. But the only place I had to fish was about a 15-minute walk from my house. I walked down over the woods, which was there at that time. Now it's the senior high school. (laughs) But I walked down through the woods, and I went to Lake Emily. It was about, I'd say, an acre of muddy water stocked with carp and catfish (laughs) and that was my fishing experience when i was young i was probably starting to fish there when i was maybe in sixth or seventh grade i had an old metal level wine casting rod the kind that you grab the tip and pull it out and it stretches out to like five feet instead of foot and a half (laughs) i guess it was the uh the pre-runner to the rod that they always, what do they put in your glove compartment? What is, oh, there's something, what did they call it? Something, pocket, oh, pocket fisherman. That's what they call uh, it. Like one of those Ron Papil things, yeah. Yeah, at least, at least I had a real fishing rod. But it wasn't a fly rod. It was a level wine with a Dacron or whatever line that they had at that time. I don't even think they had much monofilament. That came out when the spinning rods were popular. But that was my first fishing experience, fishing for carp. And I made a lot of dough ball. And I was a young kid. Sometimes when I didn't have time to take a lunch, I'd eat some of my dough ball. I hate to confess. (laughs) Oh, there there you go. And so when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing, Chuck? The dark side? Well, my parents... We, we we used to drive after church on Sunday morning out to a state park about an hour from the Keysport, Keystone Lake State Park. That was our big, big trip together. You know, the whole family. I don't have any brothers or sisters, so it's my mother, dad, and me. And my dad always liked to do the hamburgers and hot dogs, and my mother would help out. And just would just have a good time, and that's where I started to really start to fish. And uh, that was the first time I saw someone with a fly rod. 
and he was on the breast of the dam casting a little bobbin with a white streamer catching crappies between 8 and 10 inches long. And everybody else, of course, was using worms and minnows. And I thought, gee, this is cool. He's catching them on something that you don't have to stain in the stream before you go fishing and get a can and keep the water right or they'll die or dig up night crawlers or whatever. And eventually I went and pestered the guy and he put the rod in my hand and that was like light came out of the sky for me. I said, this is so light and flexible. And I caught a crappy and it felt like I had a, a sailfish on the end of my rod. <laughs> and that's the first time I really touched a fly rod. And he was really, really nice. Help, he showed me how to roll cast. Of course, he couldn't you know, do a regular cast like you normally would with a fly rod. And uh, I, that was the first time. I can't think of anything after that. There wasn't anything after that for a while because I was only, I don't know, 11 or 12 at the time. So my dad wasn't a fly fisherman. He was always a worm fisherman for perch up at Erie. When we went up to Erie, we uh, we fished with worms and caught perch and would come home at the end of the trip and have to clean about 150 perch till 2 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> there was no catch and release at that time. We, we ate perch they were delicious but i i i should tell you we were having lunch one day and i saw some largemouth bass right off the beach where we were having our lunch and i took a little piece of white bacon and i threw it in the water and the largemouth came and ate it right away and i thought huh that's cool so i put a little piece of bacon on my hook and that was not artificial it was functional i guess like putting a fly on but it was still meat you know it wasn't a feather or anything but then it's funny because later on in my life i started using leather for flies and i made flies that reminded me of that first time i cut i had that bass eat that piece of bacon because i cut real thin stripes of leather now well you know how popular the worms are now Everybody has different names for them. They started off with the San Juan worm, and that was, what, I don't know, 20-some years ago, 25 years ago. Now, what, what's the other one uh, that I always kid Tim Camisa about? Uh, uh, the, I don't know. I know, like, a lot of people. It's like, like a rubber. It's, yeah, it's oh, like it's a rubber squirmy. Stuff that, yeah, the squirmy wormy. Yeah. I always I always kid him. I said, would you catch him on the squirmy wormy? Because <laughs> we fish once in a while together, and, and we're always teasing each other. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I know, you know, I, I don't think everybody kind of in the industry, we all know you from the shows, um, but yeah. I, but you've got probably, I don't know, what a dozen patterns uh, commercially available through Rainey's. Uh, when did you get the time bug? Well, what happened was, uh, it started with when I just mentioned as in our conversation, I had, I had a leather goods store at Seven Springs. That was my business at the time. And I started that when I was, after I quit teaching, I went went to, to get my master's and then I couldn't get a teaching job because everybody wanted to pay the beginning teacher. They didn't want someone that had more credits. <laughs> so I ended up opening this leather goods store at Seven Springs. And eventually, over the years, I started using scrap leather, real, real fine lambskin and making flies. And that's 
how I was saying I copied that bacon with the leather. And of course, they had white leather, orange leather, red leather, pink leather. So that's that's how I transitioned from bait to artificial. Well, it's not artificial. It's actually it's it's from an animal, just like rabbit skin. You would you wouldn't put rabbit on on your hooks and call it uh, meat because it's from a rabbit. It's the rabbit skin and the hair. So, because I always argue with Theo Bacalar. I don't know if you remember him. He, he was he called himself. Theo Eelskin Bacalar. He saw me using a lot of leather patterns. And that's when Rainey came and asked me about the flies. And eventually I'm answering your questions. She said, would you like to be a contract tire? I said, well, what, what do you need to do? And she said, you have to tie five flies, the same ones of one pattern that you like, and you have to send them to me. And you have to make a little video of how you do the steps. And that was when VHS was popular. And I would make uh, the VHS tapes to send them to her. And I don't know if uh, people know uh, know what I'm talking about, so I hope it's interesting. They send the flies back to you that their tires copy from your video. And you look at them, and you pick the one that you think is the best, and eventually that person ends up tying your fly commercially, and you get the the name on it, your name, and you get usually it's 10% of what they sell. So, you know, I get a check for 10%. It might not be a lot, but sometimes it is. It pays for a, a, another bunch of fly-time material and maybe a gas for my boat. But uh, that's how it happened. And then she, she asked me for another pattern for the next group of catalog pictures. And so I eventually kept designing different flies. And mine are all different than the ones that she has because I tie them with the leather products. I, I call the leather products bug skin. It's not commonly known to everybody because I don't have time to promote it. But when people find out about it, they always ask me, how can I get some? So it is available. But uh, that's how it started with Rainy. She saw me uh, at a show and asked me to, to do it. And I never really promoted myself to, to make money like that. But, hey, if I get a couple hundred dollars for gasoline, it's not, not bad. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so, Chuck, when did uh, what was the impetus for you to kind of become a fly fishing show promoter? And um, can you tell us a little bit about the first show you promoted? Well, as I mentioned, I had the, the business at uh, the ski resort, Seven Springs Mountain Resort. That was my leather shop. And uh, somebody told me about a fly fishing show in Detroit. I said, Detroit, man, that's quite a drive. I said, well, we're going to drive there because we're going to set up a booth and you could go with us. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go and, you know, split the gas or whatever. And that was the show put up. That was my FFF at that time. And they had two celebrities, Gary Borger and Gary LaFontaine. And of course I knew about these people because they were famous already. And I got to meet them at the show. And it was so nice to talk to them. And the show was uh, so interesting and fascinating. And I thought, boy, this is great. But it's so far from me. It's like six hours to drive. 
And I went back to uh, the resort and I talked to Herman Dupre, who we had a good relationship, but he was the owner of the ski resort. And he said, well, why don't you try to do something like that here? Then you don't have to drive to Detroit. I said, well, I, I don't know if I could, yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money. He said, well, let me check the calendar. And he found out in the spring, one weekend after the ski season was over, things slowed down until the summer starts. And the convention hall that he had there was gorgeous. It was a real nice size. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the convention hall for, for the weekend and try to do a show. I said, well, how much is it going to cost me? He says, I'm not going to charge you. I'm giving it to you because it's available that weekend. All you have to do is fill my bar and restaurants with people and make them book rooms at the hotel. He said, but you're in charge of that hall. Don't ask me to make security available for you. You have to take care of all the expenses of hiring anybody. And that's how I did it because I got the whole exhibit hall for free. And I don't, I don't know how much they cost now. <laughs> it's not, you don't get anything for free anymore. But that's how I started the first show. I was nervous because it was all my money. And I was the first one that I knew of that did a show as an independent promoter. I wasn't a club. And there weren't that many clubs that did the shows. That was the only one I knew that up in Detroit. And I think they, I, I think I ended at 32 years and they were doing their 35th year. So only a couple years uh, ahead of me. And they're still doing that show. And we make sure we don't compete in uh, uh, the same weekend dates in March. Because our last show was in Lancaster, PA. And their show is usually the weekend after our show. So we try not to be the same weekend. And those guys are really great promoters. They did a super job. They, uh, But they have so much help when you go there. They carry everything in for you. They have an open bar. They have a buffet for all the exhibitors. And when I did the first show at Seven Springs, what do you think the first question was? Where's the bar, Chuck? I said, what bar? It's down in the hotel where it always is. No, don't you have a show bar? We, we, we always get complimentary drinks and then the buffet dinner at the show in Detroit. I said, oh, I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know you expected that. I don't, I'm not going to feed everybody. And that, that floored me, you know, and I didn't find out till a couple of years ago why they did that other than just being really nice. But because it's a, they have the tax deductible with the government, but you can't make any profit. That's what uh, Bill Keogh told me, who owns Airline Dubbing. He said they can't show a profit or they can't do the show because then they have to fill out income tax forms and pay taxes. So they have to use the money and break even and show no profit. So they use it and give everybody food and a lot of drinks for free. And I said, well... I want to make some money if I'm going to bust my butt and work real hard to make it make an event successful. If it isn't successful, I lose all my money. And I'm not a club; I'm a person that has a small bankroll. <laughs> yeah. Do Do you remember after that first show, kind of when you realized you were onto something that would grow into what we all know as the fly fishing shows today? Well, it's at Seven Springs. I always had a real nice crowd. Everybody sort of knew each other because we were all 
in the Pittsburgh area. But I never had a huge crowd, and I always thought, wow, what would it be like to get a show in an area where there were a densely populated area that was close to the show? So I I, I started thinking about that, and I did Seven Springs for two year, three years, I think it was, but I could never increase the crowd because I would get a few people that would drive up from Washington and Baltimore, but most of the people were from around Pittsburgh. And and the other thing that I don't know if you knew about this, though, but it's part of the history of the shows. The first year I decided to think about moving the show someplace else, there was another show that started in Carlisle, near Harrisburg. And I thought, well, who the heck is doing a fly fishing show in Pennsylvania? And I'm the only one that did it for a couple of years. And so I went to the show, and it was called, uh, I think he, Barry called it the the Book and Tackle Show, because he, he had a business called Angler's Art, and he sold nothing but fly fishing books. This was before the internet. He had catalogs, and you would order the books on the catalog, and they would send them to you. Anyway, I met Barry, and Barry and I hit it off, even though his show was in July, it didn't bother me in April. So we start talking about whether we ever want to do a show someplace else where we might get more people, and we ended up deciding to become partners instead of competing. So we went in 50-50, and we found a location that was available with a big exhibit hall in the middle of millions of people, and that was Somerset, New Jersey. We're close to Eastern PA. We're close to Delaware. We're close to New York. And on the map, if you drew a circle around Somerset of a 100-mile radius, there was like five and a half million people. We thought, wow, we should get a good crowd. (laughs) So that's the history of me moving the show from Seven Springs and becoming a partner with Barry. We put in, I don't remember how much exactly it cost for the facility, but if we didn't have... 2,500 people, we were going to lose money. And that's a lot of people because at Seven Springs, I had a thousand people, but I made enough money to do it again because Herman always gave me a break on the exhibit hall in the future when I started paying for it. Well, we had, I don't know if you knew about this, this is going back in the beginning. We, uh, we had 6,500 people the first year we did the show. In Somerset, we had a fire marshal that closed the doors and wouldn't let people come in unless people left. And that would be a kiss of death to anybody. But for us, it was like the Golden Globe Awards. Everybody knew this show was so great, you couldn't get in because it was so crowded. And that kicked off the whole idea of doing shows for the crowds and in, in places where you knew they would be successful. So I left Seven Springs and we did Somerset. And then Barry and I decided to do another show since that was so good. And we, we just agreed that each of us would pick a show one year somewhere. So the first one he picked was up in Marlboro, which we still do near Boston. And then the next show it was my turn to pick, and I picked Maryland, University of Maryland, 
for Baltimore, D.C. And then what was after that? I think Barry, uh, Barry picked Charlotte. And then we did that. So every year we added a show to eventually, I, I don't know how many years we did that until we hit 10 shows. I thought 10 weekends during the winter, there's only like 12 weekends to, to do events during the winter. You start at the beginning of January and you end at the beginning of March. So that was, that was pretty stressful. You had to work pretty hard to put on nine or 10 shows in a two month period. My ski got pretty bad. <laughs> I never got the ski. Ice fishing was put on the back burner. Didn't get the ice fish. Didn't get the steelhead fish in the fall because too busy working to put the shows together. Calling celebrities, hiring people, doing the programs. And uh, eventually Barry retired and he sold the shows to me. And then I ran them by myself. And then now you know that my son took over six years ago, I think it's been. Oh, this will be the sixth year coming up. Yeah. And uh, he, he's doing a great job. And I I help him a little bit, but, you know, it's it's hard to uh, to get involved in it when he's in charge because I don't want him to say, Dad, you retired. I'm running it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I go... I, I go and introduce people uh, because that's the chance I get to see all my friends that I worked with for what, 32 years, you know, it's like a high school reunion every year. So I'm still going to every show and I introduce people and I'm kind of like, uh, uh what, what did Joe Lewis do when he got done boxing? He, he worked in front of the casinos, I think <laughs> in Las Vegas or whatever. That's what I feel like. I just walk around and introduce people and say hello to people. And then my son, uh, ask me to help when he needs me. So I'm, I'm available. Yeah. And you know, in addition to the fly fishing shows, you got the international fly tying symposium. How did that event come about? Well, when I started the first show at all, just with fly fishing and casting and rods and fly tying material, I also had a group of tires that came to the show. I, I set up, some really nice tables along the wall and I used elevated tables so the people didn't have to bend over and watch them tie. And at the end of the show, usually people want to go and pack and leave and I'd look and there'd be guys still at the tying tables watching the guys tie flies. As far as the show's over, <laughs> I kicked them out of the show. But every then what happened if tires got together, you know, there may be like 10 of them that were there, they said, Chuck, they love us. Why don't we do a, a show just with fly tying in the fall before the winter season starts when they want to tie flies? And above the festival hall, or above the exhibit hall at Seven Springs, was a second hall that was smaller, and it was called Festival Hall. And that's what I did. In November, I called it the Fly Tying Symposium. And I had the first year I did, I got the best fly tires I could find, and uh, I could name a few of them, but I'm sure you know them. I had Clouser was there, uh, Bob, uh, Bob, uh, not Bob, I mean Gary Borger was there, uh, Dick Talor, 
Gary Gary LaFontaine, Ernie Schriebert, Ed Koch. I'm just thinking of all. Oh, I don't know if Jack Dennis was there that year, but I had all these great fly tires and people loved it. But it was only maybe a show of uh, 400 people, which was enough to cover the expenses because I didn't have to build a casting pond. And that's how the tying started. And eventually, when I left Seven Springs, I did the International Fly Tying Symposium. And that's when I did the hotel next to the Somerset Convention Center. And it was the Hilton and I did it in their ballroom, and that's where we did it this past year. And we get a big crowd there, and we get, I think we had six European countries represented, and we get 100 tires at the show, in addition to uh, all kinds of products that you can purchase. The Well, you know, this is the one that Tim missed, <laughs> and we had, other, we had a few other vice people, and then the people that had Shops were selling all kinds of vices. And Keo had 30 feet of space with all of his hackle. And uh, the first time we had uh, a hook company from Europe came, and I didn't know a whole lot about them because they're only a few years old. And uh, they're from Denmark. And uh, what the, my mind just went blank. What's the name of the. Uh, the hook that they produce. I think it's A-Rex, right? A-Rex, that's it. A-Rex, I couldn't think of it. But I didn't know those hooks real well because they they really weren't into trout fishing hooks. They were just about to introduce them. And they called them, I think they called them Gore, G-O-R-E. That was the name they gave the trout hooks. They introduced them at the show, and that's the first time they came to the United States with their hooks. And they were swamped with people. They were... They love that they want to come back again. So the tying symposium is not big and successful. And if I broke even, I was happy. I never tried to make money on that show. I just wanted to sustain it and, and just pay for it because it was everybody's favorite show. It wasn't a big crowd, but just like you were saying when we talked before, people can walk up to the tire and talk for five minutes or 10 minutes or a half an hour until they get pushed away from somebody else coming there. But it's such a personable atmosphere. Everybody loves to talk to the tires and learn all the tricks and see all the different patterns that are available. Yeah. It's, it's everyone's favorite show. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting too, because I'm sure the, you know, the A-Rex guys, all the musky and predator fly guys love those hooks. So I'm sure they were absolutely swamped, right? Oh, absolutely. They were given samples away. They had really nice samples of all the hooks, and they were handed them to people. They loved it. And they, they brought some of the tires over that are uh, that, that use their hooks in the United States. They brought them into the show. I gave them a uh, you know, free entrance because they were going to work with a paid exhibitor and, and tie and demonstrate. So they were going to attract, attract people. I don't know... Uh, all, all the ones that were there because I was so busy, I didn't get to stay at their booth more than a couple minutes every few hours. <laughs> they had different people all the time. But yeah, they're they're a big name now. And, uh, those hooks are really, really excellent. So, But we'll be uh, 
we'll be getting a contract uh, to to look at, and uh, I think by the end of next week, the girl uh, at the sales department called me and she said that she has the same date for me penciled in, and she'll do up a contract and see if I want to return again. So I think I'll do it as long as uh, you know. I want to talk to some more people. I need I need a few more people with merchandise. Because we had one guy, unfortunately, that fell down a week before the show. And I don't want to embarrass him by mentioning the names, but he, he hurt his back so bad he couldn't go to the show. And that was like 30 feet of space that uh, he couldn't find any products to buy. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's always interesting, right? When you, because I mean, that's a lot of tying tables to replace 30 feet of vendor space, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have about 30, uh, 30 vendors. So that's a lot, really, 30 people. Sometimes that's that's like a small one-day Trout Unlimited show. If they get 30 vendors on a Saturday, you know, they they do a show in Pittsburgh, you know, called Cabin Fever. Because after I left Seven Springs, the guys that always supported me at Seven Springs were from Penn's Woods chapter in Pittsburgh. And I knew them all. They were all friends. And I said, well, don't you guys start a show in Pittsburgh? And then they did, and it's still going on. As a matter of fact, they... Uh, the guy that runs it called me and he says, what do you charge for your tables? He was trying to find out how much he could increase the tables because of the economy. Everything's going up in price and, and the cost of the facility where they do the show, I guess, increased their price. And he was trying to figure out how to balance it out by charging extra ticket money or table money. So, but anyway, I don't get to go to it because that's the weekend we do the show in San Francisco and I'm out there in California that weekend. They're doing their show in Pittsburgh where I'd go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting too, right? Cause you literally have been kind of, you know, at with fly fishing shows from kind of the, the beginning at ground zero, you know, what changes have you seen in the consumer fly fishing show over the years, Chuck? Well, uh, there's a lot of positive things and uh, the only real negative thing was obviously the COVID. It, it closed the shows completely. You couldn't get anything worse than having the show closed. And I was watching something on television the other night and it was a, a I can't remember. He was on Friends and I never watched Friends a whole lot, but it was one of the best TV shows that they had. And he was talking when the COVID hit, they shut down all the theaters where they had plays and and musical performances and all the musicians were out of work. The actors that weren't super famous, they had nowhere to work because all the theaters were, were shut down. So that was the biggest thing that hurt the fly fishing show too, because they shut us down. It happened a weekend after our show in Lancaster. That was our last show at Lancaster beginning of March. And the decorator that set up our show for us in Edison called me from Edison. He said, Chuck, you know, I'm down here setting up the hunting and fishing show. And you know, you're not going to believe what I'm telling you. That's why I'm calling you. It's Thursday and it's noon and everybody's getting their booth set up for the three-day weekend. And the governor just shut the show down. I said, what do you mean? He said, we have to tear down all the booths and all the exhibitors were just told by the show promoter that the show is closed. And we, we missed that by one week. 
we had our show in Pittsburgh or in Lancaster. And they had, I said, well, what is he going to do? Give everybody their money back? He can't give everybody all their money back. He's still going to pay for the facility. And what about you? Are you getting paid? He said, yeah, we set up the booths. We did our job. Now we have to tear them all down. That's what we get paid for. And he has to pay us and he doesn't have a show to, to earn money. <laughs> so that was that was really scary. And that was the beginning of two years. And thank God now that uh, people are still wearing masks if they want to. But basically, hopefully uh, nothing springs up again with any kind of uh, dangerous flu or virus or whatever. The shows are going to really bounce back. So that's the worst thing that ever happened to the shows. but. The thing that I wish would improve is that the major manufacturers now, they don't seem to be owned by fly fishing guides or celebrities or lovers of fly fishing. They seem to be owned by millionaires that made their money in real estate or stocks or whatever. And they're, we call them bean cutters. They, all they want to do is make a profit. They get they get stuff cheap from Japan or Korea. They bring it to the United States and put put guides on the blanks and say they're made in the United States. They're not. They're just making a fortune. And instead of using some of that money to to come and show their products to the people at the shows, they're so big they don't they don't want to bother doing a show. They they don't have the help to send there because they're busy at their offices working on the, the computers, trying to figure out how to get things more profitable. <laughs> and uh, that's disappointing because we're promoting the sport with all these shows. And how are you going to, you know, you, you can't cast a fly rod by looking at it on your screen. I know that the uh, people buy a lot of stuff now over the internet, of course, that we never had that when I first started the shows. We, I don't even think cell phones were invented then. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first one I saw was a friend of mine that I bought buckles for my leather goods store from New York. And he came down the beach to see me, and we went down the beach together. And he was carrying this oak box. It was like the size of a beer box. <laughs> and it was, it was his satellite phone. <laughs> so if he was getting orders from people from all over the country, he would be able to take them. But it was it was probably a foot wide and a foot and a half long. I mean, it was like a little suitcase. <laughs> so that that I, I saw that and I thought, oh, okay, good luck. I don't think I'd want that. I don't. But then here we are talking on cell phones, right? <laughs> and people are listening to us. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because I mean, we sort of see um, this kind of shift in kind of the philosophy in fly fishing brands. Um, and you know, we see the technology. I mean, do you think, Chuck, that there's always going to be a place for consumer shows? Well, that's what I was worried about when it really, really took off with people ordering over the internet. Because once the pandemic hit, there were small, small shops that never really had a lot of uh, internet purchasing because they were busy. They might have been on on a river. In Wyoming or Montana, where the people fished and bought their products, but they really didn't have time to hire people to ship and box and 
takes takes things to UPS and get picked up or whatever. They had they had guys clients and they made enough money. So all of a sudden, people stopped traveling. They couldn't go places, and so some of these small businesses went totally bankrupt. But then when I mentioned Bill uh, Keogh, he had bought Hairline Dubbing, and when the pandemic hit. How many people stayed home and started tying flies like they had plenty of time now because they didn't fly anywhere to fish, they didn't they didn't go to uh, concerts, they didn't go to the movie. I mean they they had a lot more time and the fly tying materials just increased almost double. So certain people did real well and certain people didn't. But I was worried about the shows. Because I'm thinking, you know, maybe everybody's going to order online. And when I mentioned that to Bill, he said, no, when they come to the show, the first thing they do is they come over and all my feathers are laid out in, in plastic tubs and hanging up on the pegboard. And they grab those feathers and they bend the high, they bend the necks, they look at the feathers, they feel them. They can't do that. On the, when they're ordered on the internet, they they wait till it comes in the mail to get it, and we can send anything we want and tell them it's the best feather that they're going to ever see, and and we will if we're going to be honest. But there's a lot of people that are on the internet now that sell things that you don't know what you're going to get until you get it, and then you have to mail it back. So the shows have not been hurt by the internet. They actually probably increased in a certain aspect when they could see celebrities doing face facebook uh videos and anything else there on social media they could turn it on in the evening and then just type in woolly bugger and there's 10 videos on how to tie a woolly bugger but you still want to go see that person that you saw on the video in your library like Tim Flagler, for instance, he, he, he got into the video thing uh, in the beginning. But everybody that sees him on his videos sees that he's going to be at one of our shows. Hey, let's go to the show. We'll, get, we'll go tell Tim we, we see him all the time. We watch, watch his videos, and he's, he's taught us how to tie flies. Let's go watch him. He's going to do uh, a fly tying demonstration. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting too, you know, Chuck, you want to um, maybe share some of your favorite memories from the fly fishing shows? A lot of, a lot of things that I did at the end of the show was so much fun. We always had, we always tried to do a banquet where all the exhibitors would come and I wasn't like the NFF doing the free buffet. We usually had a ticket to try to cover the cost, but you have to eat anyway. So you might as well eat at a banquet with all the exhibitors. So the, the craziest thing I did that started off trying to figure out what to do every year to be crazier than the previous year, I had a roast of Lefty Craig. I don't know if you ever heard about it. It was a long time ago at Seven Springs. We had a big barbecue, and I hired, I, th I found out from somebody about this girl that wasn't a professional, but it was her, it was like her hobby to roast people. She would, she would come to the show 
and follow him around. And she asked me everything I knew about his secrets, about everything that I could tell her that she could use to smear him in a roast. <laughs> so she, Lefty uh, up in the microphone. I introduced you know, Lefty to come up and tell a few jokes. Of course, I had all this planned. Nobody knew what was going on except my son. Not, not even the exhibitors. No one knew. So he's up at the microphone telling a few jokes. Everybody's hollering. We had 150, 200 people there. And at the end, end of the building where he was talking, you hear a voice. And a, a, a lady comes in dressed up like a bag lady. You know, she had a, a, a shopping cart and she had all kinds of old clothes on her. Babushka, Bernard! Hey, honey, where are you? Well, that's Lefty's <laughs> real name, Bernard. And Lefty's like at the microphone going, what the, what the heck's going on? Who, who is it? Bernard, you left me at the motel. You said you were coming back. You had to finish that book on tying knots. You tied me to the bed, and you never, you never told me, and you left. I thought you were going to take notes on all the different knots so you could finish that book. And Lefty's going, oh, my God, what, who is this? What's this? So I told her about all this stuff, and she just roasted. The, she roasted Lefty like crazy, and uh, everybody just just loved that night. My my son actually videotaped it, and uh, I, I have that tape. It's precious. <laughs> I was afraid that I would get in trouble, but Lefty called me the, the, a couple of days later, and he had showed. Uh, we gave him a copy of the tape because we made it there and he showed it to his wife and he said she never stopped laughing the whole night so you're okay she loves you <laughs> but i was i was afraid that he was going to be in trouble because she came in as a bag lady but all those clothes that she had on didn't stay on forever and she was sitting on lefty's lap on the stage after she threw a bunch of stuff off but it wasn't real gross or anything i mean it wasn't like you know, a gentleman's club or anything, but he was a great sport. He just, it was so fun. Bob Clauser couldn't stop laughing. He had tears running down his cheeks. He was taking pictures with his camera <laughs> and he had a riot. And that was the craziest thing I ever did. But we've done a lot of things after that that were a lot of fun. Uh, very, very neat. And, you know, I think you mentioned, I think it was what in 2015, 2016, you kind of stepped back, uh, and, and Ben took over. And I was kind of curious, um, you know, what's it, what is it like as a dad kind of watching your son take over this business that you built and to continue to grow it? Well, I'm real proud of him, but I, first of all, I left it to him and then the, the, the year later, the COVID hit. So that made me feel like really sad that, that, such an unfortunate thing happened and he made money and then two years he made nothing <laughs> and had no job because he took over the fly fishing show you know he he had been uh working the shows with me you know all that time and he knew what was going on but he wasn't the owner and he wasn't splitting the profits or anything he had uh the experience so I was so happy that, that he knew how everything was run. And he he improved the shows so much because, as you know, I grew up when we had no cell phones, <laughs> no internet, no text. 
no emails. He does all that, and he gets he gets to talk to so many people his age. They don't, you know. I know a lot of people, but too bad they're not under sixty. You know, they're everybody. That's the saddest thing for me with the shows, because of course, who was the latest person that I won't see anymore? Dave Whitlock. I mean, his wife called me the day after. He died, and I was shocked. You know, I mean, I said, "Oh, here's another." I mean, Lefty was a big, a big disappointment. That I thought he was going to live to 110 or something. You know, well, just like George Harvey. He, I think he was 95 when he died, 94 or 95. But he worked until he was almost 90. But he told me, he said, "Chuck, I love doing the shows for you, but." I just can't remember these people that come up to me that I had as a student. My mind isn't as good. I, I hate it when I don't know their names. He was always wanted to be a perfectionist. Everything he did was always perfect. And if it wasn't, it frustrated him because he couldn't make it perfect. So he just decided that was the end of the shows for him. But that's, that's the sad thing about the shows. I'm, I'm still here. And I get to see everybody that I love that I've worked with all these years. But then it's tough when someone passes away. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's life, I guess. That's the way it is. But there's a lot of young people coming up, hopefully taking over some of the old timers that have made a legend for themselves. And some of these young people are, are, are growing quicker because of the Internet. That's a positive thing for it. People get, like, look. Like we mentioned, Tim Flagger, Tim Camisa. Tim Camisa has a big following. When I tell people he's a school teacher, they think he's a professional fly fisherman. <laughs> they think he just makes a living talking about fly fishing and going and doing seminars and programs and classes. But he teaches sixth grade. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too, you know, because speaking about younger people, I always think it's great to see your grandson at all the shows too. Oh, that's. That's who was. That's who was on my iPad. I have my iPad on a, a a counter in front of me because I was looking at some of the questions that we might talk about, and his face came up because he FaceTimed me. <laughs> but he worked at the tying symposium this fall, and he worked at the front door, and he stamped the people's hands, and he's he loves it. Yeah, he's a he's a real smart guy. He he could he could do anything. He's Ben, of course, you know, he lives in Crested Butte, Colorado, and uh, Tiki, his name is Tiki, T-I-K-I, and uh, I, all I can think of when Ben said that his little boy, they're going to call him Tiki, all I can think of was Tiki Barber, you know, the football player, but Ben, ben told me that Tiki is the, the name that they give to the first male born in New Zealand, and he was on his honeymoon in New Zealand. And I think that's when that all started with him starting to grow. <laughs> but anyway, he is the coolest guy. He, he helps at the shows and who knows, maybe you'll be interviewing him in about 15 years or so. <laughs> what are you going to be? You're going to, you're going to be 70. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm 53 now. So yeah, but, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, sus oh. I suspect it won't take 15 years, uh, to, to bring him on the show. And, you know, it's funny because 
you know, I'm, I'm spoiled, right? I, I, I go to a lot of these shows, but, um, you know, I always realize that, uh, there are a lot of people that, uh, don't have that as kind of part of their regular winter fly fishing routine. You know, for someone, Chuck, who's never been to one of the fly fishing shows before, you want to let them know kind of the general format? Well, usually you could go to a program maybe that a Trout Unlimited club puts on one night out of the month. You know, maybe they meet the second Thursday or whatever. And they try to attract members to their club, and they'll hire somebody to do one talk. And usually they might charge five or ten dollars just to get enough money to pay for them. But our ticket price, you have a choice of God. I just got the brochure for Edison and Ben must have forty pictures in the brochure of our celebrity speakers. But those those aren't all of the speakers. There's a lot of people that are just getting into the sport that are guides and work for shops and they do destination theater. And we have, I think six destination theaters going on every hour. And then we have the catch room, the release room and the strike room, which are major seminars where we have seats for 200 people. And that's where we get the big pros that are coming in. The big names in fly fishing. And then we have two casting pods. And then we have 200 exhibitors at Edison or more. Yeah. So, and, that's, and the price is $18. I mean, it costs you $18 to go to a crummy movie and it lasts for an hour and 20 minutes and your popcorn is greasy and you're, you dropped your Coke and whatever. And, and uh, you can do anything you want. And then we have, we have another 60 fly tires at Edison. I mean, that's... All those fly tires that do the international also want to go to the big show in Edison, too, because they get to see more people. We just, you know, Edison might get, I don't know, if it's not going to snow, we might get 10, 10 11,000 people, but it's enormous. So you get to go everywhere and uh, see everything you want for just the price of admission. And you, you'll be blown away once you go through the door you'll see everything there is in fly fishing just about and a lot of things you never knew existed. Yeah. And, uh, and I ask people at the seminars usually all the time. Uh, it's my chance of, of getting kind of a market research done in a couple of minutes. Hi everybody. Hey, can I see in the hands of those people that have never been to the show before? And do you believe like 20% of the people raise their hands? I'm thinking, what the heck? Where have you been? Well, <laughs> I remember saying that in Denver one time. Uh, this was like 10 years ago. I said, where have you been? In prison? And the one guy was in prison. He In the front row, he said, yeah, I just got out. <laughs> so I don't say that anymore. I don't say that anymore. I don't want, I don't want to insult anybody. Yeah. But what, why? Why? Do these people not find the show? But once they find it, they come back every year. And there are guys, then I'll ask, how many people have never missed the show? And there are guys that have been to every show for like 20 years. They never miss it. But you know, that's pretty hard, especially if you're married and have a couple kids, because the kids are going to get married. There's going to be, you know, some, some music thing that they want you to come to see, or they're on a play or church or whatever. So you, you don't always have a weekend free when the show's there. 
The show's only there one weekend of the year, and hopefully you can come. But we always have new people coming all the time. And uh, I guess the people that don't show up, maybe like we talked about, they get older and they pass away. You don't see them anymore. You, you don't know that, especially with the pandemic. There's two years where you didn't see anybody and you don't know what happened to them. <laughs> yeah. And you don't you don't want to go around and ask, hey, what happened to Bob? Yeah. So, yeah. But you know, it's interesting too, you know, talking about having twenty percent kind of new people. If you're new to a fly fishing show, what are your suggestions uh for that new person to get the most out of the event? Well, I I know that you just can't walk through the door without a plan. It's I was trying to, I saw that question that uh, was on the iPad, a couple that you gave me. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, I'm going to answer that like this. And this is what I was going to say. Well, I am going to say, you go to a show like you're going to trout fish to a stream. You don't go and start wading in the water and flailing your fly line. You don't go to a show and just bust through the door and start walking through and, and try to figure out where something is that you want to find. You you get a floor plan. You see where the booth is if there's something that you know you want to see. You look at the seminar list. Now, when the computers started becoming very popular, guys were coming that were sharp through the door, and they had a printout sheet that they printed on their printer, and they had a schedule. They knew what seminars they were going to go to, if they were going to go on a trip to Montana, they were definitely going to go to this destination theater talk that was the guide was doing that represented the Bighorn River, say, or something, the Missouri River. If they were going to go to Chile, they were going to see that talk. If they wanted to improve their casting, they were going to make sure they came and watched Lefty Cast or Gary Borger or Jeff Currier or any Gary Gary Borger always does a great, great job. And we, Kathy Beck, comes and, and does demonstrations and for the ladies. So there's there's something for everybody. And then Edison this year, we have a whole section. I didn't say this. and You probably didn't even think about it of asking because maybe you didn't know it existed. But we have a whole section for women. There's like 30 exhibitors that have nothing but products geared towards women for fly fishing. Because 10 years ago, that was a big topic in fly fishing. Why aren't we making waders that fit women? Why do they have to look like some kind of a robot <laughs> wearing stuff that doesn't fit them? Why don't we have nice light? Fl- they even went so far. I remember uh, Rick at Temple Fork. He made a couple hundred pink fly rods for casting for recovery people. And the, he, you know, that was that was a. Something really great, I thought. You started to pay attention to what the customers didn't have, and you provided that for them. So when you come to the fly fishing show, if you don't find something there that you're looking for or something that you would like to have, then I'd be amazed. What what, what you would really do is to buy more than you ever expected or to see more than you ever expected. So you, you can't do it all in one day. You can't even do it in three days. We have a lot of people that book a hotel room and stay for like, it's like going to Disney World. They don't, they can't go there for one day and see all the rides. You know, they're going to come to the show and stay for three days and see everything. Yeah. Plus your friends, right? I mean, it starts to become a big thing where it's like one time a year to get to see your folks. 
Yeah, I, I know there's a group of guys that uh, uh, that get on uh, social media and say, hey, we're going to the show and we're going to meet for breakfast. And they pick a breakfast place and they all, they're like 15 guys and they all meet and they hang out together. And then they, they go to the restaurant at the bar that night and stay in the motel. And it's, it's like a whole fraternity that, that there are hundreds of fraternities that come to the show. You get to see people that you fish with and you maybe haven't seen them for five or six months with their families. They're busy. So it's, it's a big personal place to make contacts face to face. You don't have to, you don't have to look at someone and say, Hey, text me. (laughs) We're going to sit down and have a beer and talk about the trip we had last summer together, you know? So that's, that's the whole idea at the show. If you're unhappy at the show, then you, you know, I feel sorry for you, but, uh, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. And I would say too, in Edison, you know, if you're talking about a good place to eat, I would say you need to go get a Reuben at Harold's, right? Oh my God. I never went to that place until the first time I couldn't believe it. And you know who was at the door? It made me feel, feel proud because I, I'm at the show and introduce everybody and help out. The guy that owns it was right at the door. He seated us at the table. I think he knew because we had fly fishing show shirts on and he knew who we were and he took care of us because we were like a third of his business that night. I don't know if people know what we're talking about, but they do a corned beef sandwich. It's what two feet high with lunch with corned beef. Yeah. And they've got a matzo ball soup with a matzo in it. It's the size of a coconut. (laughs) It's a great, the only thing you have to, you have to make sure you're not, impatient because you'll get a table but it might take a half an hour yeah it depends you just have to go maybe like at five o'clock instead of six or quarter to i always like to go quarter till the hour because how many people want to meet together say what time should we meet well let's meet at six so i go at quarter to six or let's meet at seven so i go a quarter to try to meet them by 15 minutes and get a table before yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's a great place. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, uh, you've got the women's showcase in Edison. Anything new kind of in the fly fishing shows at 2023 we should let folks know about? Well, I wanted to go through the brochure and uh, you, you don't know this, but I'm getting a, a meniscus taken care of tomorrow on my knee. So I've been getting all these pre-tests so I could get the surgery. And I got the brochure, but I haven't been able to read if I was doing the show, I would probably have most of it memorized. But since Ben does it all, I have to see who he has coming. And I'm going to have to learn everybody's name that I don't know. And there's probably, out of the 45 celebrities or so that are doing talks, there's probably four or five that I don't know. I just never read their books or saw them and, and or met them, so... I would. I can't give you the answers to that question because I'd have to just try to think real hard. But the one thing I could tell you that the people that have been coming every year, people want to see them over and over again, and they know that, and they want to see them do different talks because they're knowledgeable in all aspects of fly fishing. So we have people that maybe did a talk on trout, and they're going to do it. The talk now on uh, salmon in Alaska. They're going to do a talk on tarpon in Florida. 
There's there's saltwater talks. There's freshwater talk. There's a talk going to be in Marlboro, and I don't know who's going to do it. I have to look on Martha's Vineyard because I always like to fish at Martha's Vineyard, and I haven't gone for a couple of years, and I I want to find out if the fishing has slacked off or come back or what. So I, I might go try to sneak in that talk and tell Ben to get someone else to work for an hour. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And so what I'll do is I'll drop a link in the show notes so people can um, can go find what they're looking for, wherever they're going to be able to make a show. And it's interesting too, right? So we're going to release this um, right before the Atlanta show. And I know this year is the first year you've gone from a two-day show in Atlanta to a three-day show in Atlanta. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, the people wanted it because it was so busy. And five o'clock, there were, you know, fifteen hundred people there. And usually, it's down to three, four hundred at the end of the day. But they were they were packed in there, and they and the exhibitors that come from great distances don't mind a two day show, but it costs the same to do a three day show plus a motel room. You know, we don't we don't charge anything extra for your booth. It's usually the same for two days as it is for three. But then the only expense you have is like another motel for one extra night. So to get a three-day show out of it, maybe that third day you book someone for $5,000 to your camp in Alaska. Well, maybe more like seven or 8000 now. But uh, sometimes a three-day show is, is more desirable than a two-day. As long as you have the people. And the people were coming to Atlanta, so we're doing it. And we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's I'm interested. I'll be there for all three days. And you know what I'll do, Chuck, is I'll um I'll drop uh, a link to the website for the fly fishing show as well as all the social media stuff because I know in particular uh Ben and his folks have been super active on Instagram and I'll drop all the links. So, you know, anyone that wants to find out, you know, if if there's a show close to them and all the details, I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes. Oh yeah, and the press releases uh <clears throat> Bennett Mintz is our marketing director uh, out of California. He's been in the industry forever, but I think Bennett is 88 years old. Uh, and I, I don't want him to be crossed off the old-timers list and retire. I want him to work forever. And he's such a good writer. His press releases are they have everything in it. And he just sent the press releases out today, and he sent them to be. He always sends them to me to read. And I love it because I found a mistake. He had one comma missing. And when I write a press release, I always said it to him. When I did the shows, he didn't, he didn't do them first. I wrote the press release, and I sent it to him. And he would send it back with about 10 corrections. And I'd say, oh, my God, did I, is mine that stupid that I made all those spelling errors and put the punctuation wrong? But I finally got to correct about one comma. <laughs> well, there you go. And you have a nice stack of press releases to uh... – to read while your knee is propped up for the next week or so, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and he, he sends them to all the outdoor papers and all the magazines and outdoor writers, so they'll start popping up everywhere. People will people just uh, Google the name, and you'll, you'll find them uh, on the computer to see. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to you coming, so it's great. Yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate you making some time for me, Chuck, particularly in light of the fact that you're going to go have surgery tomorrow. I hope it goes well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I don't own the shows anymore. I'd give you a free ticket, but Ben said I could give you 10% off if that's okay. Fair enough. I'll uh, <laughs> I'll grab you when I get there and we'll we'll track Ben down. 
<laughs> I'm only teasing. <laughs> I tell that to all my friends. They think I'm going to give them all free tickets, and I do anyway. <laughs> well, well, listen, I really appreciate you making the time to chat with me, and I look forward to seeing you in person here in a few weeks. Great. Great. I hope I gave you some information that you wanted. And uh, if you forget something, ask me at the show. We'll have time to talk a little bit. I'll do it. Take care. All right. See you. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcast of your choice. And don't forget to head over to www.nor-vice.com to see if the Norvice folks will be coming to a fly fishing show near you. Tight lines, everybody.